If you would now take a copy of God's Word in hand and turn to the Gospel according to John, look at the first 11 verses of chapter 18. If you're using one of the Bibles in the PRAC, you can see the page number there. In our worship guide, it's on page 904. When the Apostle Paul is given instructions to the church at Corinth about taking the Lord's Supper, he recounts the evening, beginning with, on the night when he was betrayed. So we're going to look at that betrayal tonight. Now, I know we got a lot of kids in here tonight. Uh, maybe you know what the word betray means. Maybe you felt like you've been betrayed before by someone. Uh, maybe you don't know what the word betray means. And so, kids, tonight, very simply, the word betray means to hand over. Uh, that's what it means in the original language. And Jesus is being handed over to his enemies. And that's what we're going to look at, that story tonight. Now, as I read the story for us tonight, uh, in a couple verses, it says, I am he. Now, the Greek is ego am I, and it's just simply I am. And English translators have supplied the he because it works better in English, but I think there was intention and purpose that will become evident in just having I am. So I will read it accordingly here as we look at John 18 verses 1 through 11. Before we hear God's word, let us ask for his help in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, this is your word. It is a word about your Son, the one who is the living word. And he is the one that we most desperately need, for he is the only Savior, the only Lord, the true King of Kings. So we ask that by your Spirit working among us, we would come to know the Savior in greater and deeper ways as we hear your word read and proclaimed. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Hear the word of God from John chapter 18, beginning in verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook, the brook Kidron, where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place for Jesus, often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am, they drew back and fell to the ground. So he asked them again, Whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am. So if you seek me, let these men go. 
This was spoken to fulfill the word that he had spoken. Of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, Put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? Amen. And that ends this reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. May he write its eternal truth on all our hearts. The Brook Kidron, it's the valley that drops approximately 200 feet from the east side of the temple base there in Jerusalem. On the other side of this valley is the Mount of Olives. In 2 Samuel 15, verse 23, it says, The king crossed the brook Kidron. Now, this was a thousand years before Jesus crossed it with his disciples. This was King David. King David betrayed and humiliated by his son, Absalom, is fleeing Jerusalem. Jesus has left the upper room with his followers, and he crosses the same valley and onto the Mount of Olives into a garden. Jesus is heading for humiliation by betrayal too. The difference is that in the story of David and Absalom, there's a coup, and David really doesn't have a choice. David is fleeing for his life, and he has to trust the Lord. Jesus, what we see here is that he chooses the humiliation, and that humiliation begins with betrayal. And there's a couple things I wanted to see about this betrayal here in these 11 verses. So I've got three headings for us tonight in verses 1 and 2. I want us to take note of the intimacy of the betrayal. And then in verse 3, and then particularly in verse 10, the ignorance that is on display in the betrayal. And then considering the whole, verses 1 through 11, the irony of the betrayal. We begin with the intimacy of the betrayal. Look back there at verse 2. It says, Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus met there often with his disciples. Judas knew the place. Now, it could be that Jesus met there often with his disciples the week of his passion. He's entered Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, and it could be that every evening this is where they've gone to retreat and rest and pray together. It could be that Jesus met there often with his disciples every time he was in the capital city. That this was a special place where they would get away from the crowds and have time for prayer and instruction and refreshment. Judas was one of them. He was one of the twelve. His peers didn't know he would be the betrayer. By all appearances, he was devout. He was trusted. He was so trusted that they had him carry the money. 
that all the resources that they received from the generosity of others supporting Jesus and his disciples, Judas was the one entrusted with it. They didn't know he had this going on in his heart, these seeds of betrayal that had been sown, and now they're coming to bear fruit. Remember Judas, he was sent out and he preached the message that Jesus gave his disciples to preach. He cast out demons in Jesus' name. He heard Jesus' private teaching that was only for the twelve. He heard Jesus pray. What, what's more intimate than hearing someone else pray? Hours before this, he was there in the upper room where Jesus took the position of servant and a wash basin and a towel. And he washed the disciples' feet. He washed dirt and grime and nasty stuff from the bottom of Judas' feet. It's an intimate betrayal. There's a lot of mystery behind Judas' sin and this great sin. The Bible's clear. It's according to God's ordination. And Judas, to be sure, is a willful participant. And while we can't explain everything that was going on or speculate on how Judas convinced himself that maybe somehow this was the right thing to do. It is a true betrayal, and in this betrayal from an intimate friend shows the depth of sin that can fester and stew in the human heart. And how toxic and corrupting sin can be. And the intimacy of the betrayal shows the depth of pain Jesus experienced on the behalf of those whom he would save. And it's not primary to what we're thinking about tonight, but it is a comfort to know that if you are someone here tonight, that if you have been deeply wounded and harmed, let down, but more than let down, handed over, betrayed, by someone who was close to you, someone who you thought was someone else than they turned out to be, someone whom you trusted, Jesus knows an even greater betrayal. So you can go to him with that pain. And maybe that's what you need to do in these next couple of days as you are thinking on the cross and resurrection of Christ is that there is hard work for you to do of releasing bitterness from betrayal, looking to the Savior. There's so much more in this intimate betrayal. John gave us an Easter egg here in the passage, and then that's probably confusing for a lot of reasons, but an Easter egg in a sense of like, have you ever seen a movie where a director puts something in the movie that as you're watching the movie, you wouldn't think anything of it. It just passed by. Maybe it's an object. Maybe someone says something. And then later on you find out it was a type of foreshadowing. It was a clue. It was actually moving the plot forward. Or it was just loaded with meaning. John did that in verse 1. Did you 
pick up John's Easter egg for us here in the passage. The other gospel writers, they're clear to identify the location as Gethsemane, but John avoids using the location. He wants to say this happened in a garden. This intimate betrayal was in a garden. It's quite intentional on John's part because that's where the first betrayal happened. Where Adam betrayed God for Satan in the garden. And to be sure, that was an intimate betrayal. When Adam betrayed God, he goes into hiding and God shows up in the cool of the day to walk with Adam because that's what Adam was created for, to know and walk with God. And Adam betrayed that. So John wants you to know that what is happening here is happening in a garden. Now hold your place there in John 18. Just turn over and Chapter 19, verse 41. There, John says, Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. And then in verse 15 of verse 20, Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've laid him, and I will take him away. John wants to make it very clear that ruin and destruction came through betrayal in the garden, and rescue and repair and the renewal of all things begins with the son being intimately betrayed in the garden. Then in verse 3 and then in verse 10, we see the ignorance of the betrayal. Judas shows up, and he's not alone. He's procured a band of soldiers. Now, these are Roman soldiers. Now, we've got to do some thinking. How does a guy like Judas show up with soldiers? Well, it's quite the conspiracy, but part of the, the why this is reasonable is that this is the Passover time. And Jews have gathered from all over the known world, coming back to Jerusalem. It's a packed city, but it's under Roman government control. And the last thing that the Romans want is there to be any sort of riot or disturbance. They want to maintain the peace and order of Jerusalem. And so, it is very, very plausible and, I think, convincing that we should expect there to be a large Roman presence in Jerusalem during the Passover. And so, a band of soldiers, it's a, it's, it's a cohort. Now, what's astonishing is that a cohort could exist somewhere between 200 to 600 soldiers. And I don't think John is trying to claim that there's hundreds of soldiers. He's telling us that there's a large representation. A band of Roman soldiers have come out. And they've come out with some of the officers from the chief priest. These would have been the Jews' own temple police. And then there are the Pharisees. They've all come together. 
Here, Judas is the informant. And now, this group of religious leaders who on several occasions, particularly in John chapter 7, have tried over and over to arrest Jesus. Now, with this traitor, this informant, this insider who comes to them, now they can go to the Roman soldiers and say, look, this guy's talking about he's a king. This guy has said the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. John 12, 23. Here it is. He's plotting a revolution. He's plotting trouble. And so, this motley crew comes together to arrest him. But they're, they do so in such an ignorant way. They show up with lanterns and torches and weapons. The Passover corresponds to the full moon. So it would have been a very lit evening. But yet they believe that they need lanterns and torches as if this man is going to be hiding in the shadows. And they've become convinced that he's going to resist and maybe he will threat with violence. So therefore, it's a whole band of soldiers with weapons. How wrong were they? There's something that All the commentators like to, in their own way, wax eloquent on this, that there were lanterns and torches sent out to find the light of the world. They were armed with weapons to apprehend the Prince of Peace. They don't know who they're dealing with. They don't understand his message. They don't understand his mission. They don't understand the nature of his kingdom. And there's a particular religious ignorance on display here, isn't there? These Pharisees and the officers of the temple, the high priest there. The Roman soldiers weren't the ones a couple hours earlier eating the Passover meal. These men, on this night, as this plot comes together, earlier in the evening, they too shared in a Passover meal. The Passover meal being the commemoration of when God delivered his people out of Egypt. And he did so through the blood of a lamb that was spread on the doorpost. And as God sent his angel to destroy the firstborn of the Egyptians, he passed over all the homes that had the blood. And here is the lamb the one that that meal pointed to right before them. And they can't see it. But it's not just the Pharisees and the religious leaders that can't comprehend Jesus' mission. It's even to this point, his own follower, Peter, in verse 10. Look back there at 18, verse 10. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. Now, at one level, we might really admire Peter here. Earlier in the evening, he resolved never to deny Jesus. And here, Jesus and his disciples are clearly outnumbered. They don't have as many weapons. And he courageously attacks in defiance, 
It's a man who is ready to die for Jesus here. But Peter is told to put the sword away by Jesus. Peter is convinced that Jesus is king, but he has yet to understand how that kingdom arrives and how it advances. It will advance through the cross, not through earthly swords. Now, people have been confused and they believe that potentially this is a command to be pacifist. And Christians are not forbidden from using the sword, especially not when defending the defenseless. There is a biblical ethic that supports self-defense, certainly the use of the sword for law enforcement, and the use of the sword in a just war. But what Peter misunderstands here is that Jesus' kingdom is never advanced with earthly swords. It is the darkness that advances through violence, but not Jesus' kingdom. It's the right cause, wrong approach. Peter will be given a sword. He'll be given a sword, God's word. It's the word of the cross. And through that word of the cross, King Jesus subdues his enemies and advances his kingdom. Lastly, there's the irony of this betrayal. John told us in the beginning of his gospel that this would happen. In John chapter 1, verse 5, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. The irony here is that in the hour of darkness, of his betrayal and his arrest, Jesus is the one who's in complete control. That's John's main point in these 11 verses. Jesus is the one who is in control of everything. Every decision reflects his resolve to go to the cross. And every action reflects his sovereign and total control over every event that's going to lead up to that cross. He is in charge of his own surrender. His apparent defeat is by his own design. So in verse 2, we're told that Judas knew the place, but Jesus knew that Judas knew the place, and knowing what Judas was plotting, he made it easy for Judas to find him. Now in the other Gospels, we're told that Judas came and signaled who Jesus was for the soldiers with a kiss. But the way that John tells the story, he adds a different emphasis because he wants us to understand that it wasn't Judas' kiss that ultimately led him into the hands of the soldiers for arrest. Is that Jesus comes forward, we see in verse 4. He takes control. Jesus won't allow Judas to have control of the scene. Jesus comes forward and says, whom do you seek? And he poses the question and he makes them answer the question before them. Whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Now, Nazareth is a nowhere town. It is of no significance. 
In fact, the reason why we even know Nazareth is because of the biblical record. Outside of, of the biblical record, there was no reason to write about Nazareth. So there's almost this implied insult of Jesus of Nowheresville. That's who we're looking for. And how does he respond? In verse 6, I am. Ego am I. I am. Jesus has used this title for himself in John's gospel over and over again. I am the door. I am the good shepherd. I am the bread of life. I am the vine and so forth. I am the way, the truth, and the light. Before Abraham was, I am. And now, whom do you seek? Jesus of Nazareth. And he uses the title given to him by his father, I am. And their response is appropriate. I don't know how much of it is their response. As if they couldn't help themselves. And it says that they drew back and fell to the ground. The force of the divine name on Jesus' lips knocks him down. This is the name that when Moses said, who is sending me to Pharaoh? Who should I say is sending me? And God responds from the burning bush in Exodus 3, I am. And now it is on the lips of Jesus. They come with force and he matches it with a force greater than theirs and otherworldly. As a revealing of his majesty in the darkest of hours. In Leviticus 9, when Moses and Aaron are dedicating the tent of meeting where God would come and dwell with his people, they've prepared everything. And then they deliver the offerings and they put them in their place and fire descends from heaven and the glory of God appears to everyone and all that were there fall down. And John has told us that the word became flesh and he dwelt, he tabernacled among us. And here is a revealing of his glory. They are knocked down. They cannot stand. David writes in Psalm 9, my enemies, they stumble in your presence. The psalmist writes in Psalm 27 too, when evildoers assail me, it is they who stumble and fall. It is a preview of what Paul tells us is going to happen at the last day. In Philippians 2, it says that at the last day, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. Every knee will bow, every tongue confess. The soldiers saw who the true king and Lord was and they are knocked over. The question remains for each person who's ever walked on the earth. Whom do you seek? And will you bow the knee to King Jesus before the last day? Because if you wait to the last day, you will certainly bow. And then there will be the judgment. But why such a display of such power and glory and majesty? Verse 8. Jesus has demonstrated this force because he wants to secure the release of his disciples. Let these men go. Let these men go. 
He knocks over his opponents in order to set free his disciples that they wouldn't too be arrested with him. James Hamilton said it this way, here is the essence of Jesus' life on display. He commands those arresting him to take him and let his followers go free. And then in verse 9, John points out that Jesus is fulfilling his own word. That word is a reference from John chapter 17, where Jesus prayed for his disciples. And it was his prayer. And there he said that, of those, of those whom you gave me, I have not lost one. Jesus is fulfilling his own word and prayer. Now, certainly when Jesus prayed this for his disciples, he was talking about their eternal souls, their eternal destiny, their eternal salvation, that it would not be lost. The ones whom the Father gave him would stay in his hand and he would not let them go and he would not let them ultimately fall away without recovering. But here, the fulfillment has a temporal, temporary, physical safety aspect. It's the kindness of the Savior knowing that Peter, James, and John, and the remaining 11 who are still with him, they're not ready to be arrested for his name. They're not ready to be tortured and interrogated for his name. They're not ready to be dragged out into the street and stoned. They're not ready to face execution. They will one day but it would be after his cross and the sending of the Spirit. But they're not ready now. So as a kind, compassionate shepherd king, he secures their release. And for what reason? He is determined to die on their behalf, to receive the judgment of sin on their behalf. In verse 11, Jesus said to Peter, put away your sword into the sheath, and then he also says, shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? This is a cup of judgment. We see in Psalm 75 that God promised to judge and pour out his wrath upon evildoers. In Isaiah 51, verse 17, it is a cup of wrath. It is Jesus' design that he will drink the cup. Now, John doesn't highlight what other gospel writers highlight, that Jesus agonized over this, but he did. But now, as his betrayer and the soldiers are before him, the agony is resolved, and he is determined to drink the cup. And later, as he's hanging on the cross, John 19, 28, these are some things that are unique to John's telling of the story. Jesus cries out, Several things that only John records. And one of them is, I thirst. I thirst. I want to drink the cup. I thirst. So they bring him literal sour wine. And after drinking the sour wine, that's when Jesus says it is finished. See, the irony is that the plotting of the Jews and the Romans with their informant Judas... The betrayal, the arrest, the trial, the execution, the seeming defeat of Jesus was actually the plan, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit 
for Jesus' victory and his rescue of sinners. This is John's point. So for us, tonight, tomorrow, a Good Friday service, Sunday, and every Sunday, we are not remembering what Judas and the Jews and the Romans did to Jesus. We are remembering what Jesus did for the world. Tonight, tomorrow, Sunday, and every Sunday. We are not reminding ourselves of a life that was taken. Oh, but we are looking to the one who gave his life. He said, no one takes it from me, but I lay it down my own accord. Let us pray. Our great Lord and God, what great depths did you descend for our salvation? May we see it truly and cling to it deeply. We ask that as we come to the table tonight, that you would use these ordinary elements, bread and the cup, to strengthen our faith. Help us to come in faith tonight to receive from the one who was betrayed for us, who gave his body as our bread, who gave his blood to fill the cup of salvation, drinking the cup of your wrath. May we come and receive from the Savior tonight at the table. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.